UX Podcast Episode 309. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Roy Lawson. Balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners all over the world, from the Czech Republic to San Marino. And for this episode, we are bringing you, once again, a link show. And um, as I would normally say, or one of us would normally say, um, a link show is where Per and I have um, gone through the entire internet and we've looked and read absolutely everything that's out there been you know, written in recent weeks and pulled out just two articles that we think are worth talking about. I may well be exaggerating in what I've just said. We always call this our digital travels. These are. We find them in our digital travels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the two articles are one, one that you found that I wasn't aware of, actually, uh, talking about... Container queries land in stable browsers. What is a stable browser? Is that for horses? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I should. I really have to ask you careful. I'll just say yes when you say things like that because people <laughs> might actually believe me. Um, yep. That's um, that's an article um, by um, Una Kravitz. And the second article we'll be talking about today is design thinking was supposed to fix the world. Um, uh, then there's a subtitle, which is, where did it all go wrong? Hmm. And that's by Rebecca Ackerman. Yes, on MIT Technology Review. Uh, that's a quite a long one. We'll start off with container queries, I think. So yeah, um, this first one, container queries land in stable browsers. Um, and stable browsers is not um, something to do with horses. Um, so, um, actually, what it means is that this this particular feature is now available in all the three major web browser engines. Um, and this article is by um, Una Kravitz, um, who um, works with Google Chrome. Um, she's um, she's one like um, well, Katie, we, we talked to quite a while back um, about um, other features from Google Chrome. Um, they're part of a team. Of engineers that well communicate and discuss things that are happening and um, well, share it with the world. But um, I, I picked this one because um, I, I think it's a really, um, really meaningful development. Um, with if we go back a bit, then um, this this feature has actually been around since the autumn, um, but um, I think September. But the um, what happened uh, this month in February um, is that Firefox added support, meaning that we've hit now the milestone of that all the major rendering engines, um, are, you know, Safari and then the the, the, the Chromium ones, um, yeah. are all supporting this. Um, so that means you're kind of at a point where oh, you can probably dare to use it. But I'll get I'll get back to that a little bit. I wanted to back up even further with this one and and explain that. I'll just point out that as designers, if we're working with design in web browsers, we've probably been working with and aware of responsive design and breakpoints um, well, for quite a number of years now. 
we talked about it in early days when we started this podcast is when people started really implementing responsive design. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's over 10 years ago now when we've, we've talked about it and we, we even brought um, Brad Frost in reasonably early on to talk about um, oh, responsive design and um, oh, designing for mobiles. Um, hmm. But um, uh, there's, been a, there's been something called media queries in CSS for quite a long time as well now. Um, and media queries are for basically um, using the um, type of place where we're displaying the content um, to dictate how the design will be displayed. So a media query um, would usually be for a type of media, so like print or screen, but then you can also target the qualities of that particular media. So you can you can use things like um, you know the viewport width or the screen orientation or even the pointer type. Um, oh, these are all things that can can um, you can use you can utilize to decide yeah, how you dis how you you display something, how it um, gets rendered in the browser. And when we say viewport, what does that mean, James? Right. So you've got your screen and your screen size and screen resolution, um, but it's not always the case that um, the place where your web page is being rendered fills the entire screen. Yeah. So, for example, when I'm when I'm talking to you now, um, the web page of which the, the communication tool we're using to talk to each other, um, that's actually only probably it's not even a third of my screen, and it's not the full height of my screen. It's just a portion of my screen. Hmm. So the viewport is the little window of the browser where my pages page yeah. be displayed. So it, it's you know it's rare. It, well, it pretty much can't be 100% of your screen because there's always going to be some bit of the browser. That's eating up a little bit of the of the um, physical screen, um, but um, sometimes it can be quite close to the whole thing. Like on mobile phones, for example, it's going to be very close to the um, the whole screen size. But on a desktop machine, then it quite often can be very different to um, the resolution. Hmm. But um, so media queries and and responsive designs are great points. That's something we've been using for quite a long time. Um, and we, when you get used to designing, okay, here's my here's my design for when um, oh, something is this wide. Here is my design for something when it's this wide, and so and on. People tend to think of desktop, tablet, mobile as those three major ones, but yeah. then I mean, you can. That's the wrong way of thinking of it in my mind because it can be so many other things as well. Yeah, exactly. But the the, mm -hmm. the kind of quick way of, of dealing with that would be the the, the small, medium, large. Yeah. Um, I mean, some days now, I mean, I'll, I'll, when I'm doing analytics to do this thing, I'll often now do small, medium, large, and extra large. Ah, yeah. Uh, and the, re the reason, why I've done, reason why I've done that when it comes to gathering data about how these viewport sizes are is that we, we've got so many of these giant curved monitors. I have one myself. And um, you, know, you, end up, you can end up with some really wide rendering of web pages, and ridiculously wide. Um, and I've, you see a lot of when I full size my browser on this screen, a lot of web pages kind of break because you know I've got like eighty centimeters between the left hand side of the web page yeah. and the right hand side of the web page. So if you have a menu bar and the the, the links are at, in the top right, you'll struggle actually to find them. Oh god, yeah, yeah. I, I to, like, go on a walk to get to the other side up there. I'm, yeah, yeah. Carry my <laughs> mouse with me to to move all the way up to the top right. Um, but yeah, so. Um, that's all the kind of background and how we have media queries and where we come from. So what's, what's happened now is we've, we've got to the point where we can start using things called container queries. 
And I'll, now I'll quote a bit from the article. Um, with container queries, you can query the styling information of a parent element, such as its inline size. With media queries, you could query the size of the viewport. But container queries enable components that can change based on where they are in the UI. So what, what this means is, whereas previously we've been using breakpoints and media queries, so based on the viewport of the whole page, now we're this People, wide. I think, will recognize this. Like if you have three columns of, of uh, cards, then uh, if you have a wide one, you'll see those three columns as, as designed. But if you have a small screen, like on a mobile, the same cards get layered on top of each other. Yeah. And there'll be a snap. There'll be a point where you get in the screen width then when suddenly we change to that look. Yeah, right? exactly. So what container queries allow you to do is instead of basing it on the entire viewport, the screen, you can now go, okay, I'm a, I'm a component um, and I want to look like this when the place I'm sat in is this big. So we can now target things a little bit smaller, a little bit more contextually. And it is a massive step forward, really, when it comes to um, how we're working, how we design, because it effectively enables us to design how we've always wanted to design. That, you know, I, I do a card, for example, and, you know, I want the card to look like this when it's in this size space. And I want it to look like this when it's in this size space, you know, a little mm. bit bigger. And that's been always something that, you get pushback on it. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. What do you mean you can't do it? Well, no, because I, I've got no way of knowing how big a space I'm in, is what the devs would kind of like come back to yeah, and always say. Yeah, because they only say. know the size of the viewport. That's ultimately the only thing yeah. that they've got to play with in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you end up having then to, to go, okay, then um, this is how it's going to look on tablet. This is how it's going to look on mobile, because you've got to fall into the media, you know, the, the, the media query and the breakpoint. Mm. Now, like I said, we can actually with container queries it can be implemented in a way which is relative to the the place it's sat in um and cards are by far the best you know all the most e easy way of i think anyway of, of communicating the the impact of that of understanding it yeah yeah, of, yeah understanding it because you've got you cards are reusable reusable components so here we get into why this can be such a big impact for so many of us because we work in design systems with reusable components and if you are working with reusable components in a design system, then now you can finally actually have proper reusable components that do work in different contexts rather right. than just this is how it looks in a you know, mobile viewport. This is how it looks in a desktop viewport. Um, we so, if, if, so from my example before, when we had three columns with three cards and you have a lower resolution, often what will happen then is, like I said, it will, the three cards will layer on top of each other. But what I like about this is that it's it makes more sense now, and it's much easier to implement the fact that when I get smaller, I may now have two columns, and the third card actually uh, doesn't flip down and be on its own row, but it can actually be as wide as the two other cards, mm -hmm. because it's not, the container that it's inside is now wider, so it can become wider even though the width of the viewport is actually more narrow. Yeah, I mean you, you can literally have you can also though you can have you can have the same card twice on the same page. Just yeah, that, and in different sizes. Yeah, yeah and, and some of the cards are actually just mm. in a different, like you could have the you could have some cards appearing in the left-hand column and in the, the main body. Mm. And the ones in the left-hand column are your kind of mobile cards. Yeah. And the ones in the body are your kind of like, you know, desktop search results kind of cards. 
uh, uh, but it's the same thing. It's the same card, yeah. It's the same. It's the same code. It's just hmm. basically using CSS to go. Ah, I'm over here now. I only have this much space. I'll look like this. I can see how excited you are about this. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've, well, I've talked now for ten minutes about it's something which is just like one feature. Well, what's the? Be- I mean, it sounds extremely technical, uh, but I think it, it that again comes down to what we as designers we need to know the material we're working with. So. Previously, like you were saying, we may have asked questions, can't we do it like this? And you may have gotten a no. And it's important to understand things you may have gotten a no for in the past may actually be possible now. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, we talk, we've, mm. we we are both advocates of mm. oh, de- designers being able to understand um, some of the concepts of coding like this one. And, and for me, that's always been the same thing as like, well, you know, you're not going to be an architect without understanding gravity, or you're not going to be kind of, um, you're not going to work with pottery unless you have some idea how clear works. It, it's kind of like understanding the medium you're working with. And and just this particular one, I think, uh, even if you don't fully understand the technicalities of this feature, this is going to revolutionize in some situations your communication with devs. That that now, rather than kind of like you say, oh, I'd really like this card to behave like this, Instead of just kind of getting some kind of deep sigh and like a whole kind of pushback and like you know, sad looking dev who can't, was trying to explain again why he can't, you're going to, or why they can't, um, suddenly you could get the eyes lighting up. Yeah. And, you know, your, your, your dev team looks at you and go, oh, excellent. We can do it like this. And it's so much simpler. And I've even seen myself realizing that I've worked the QR code where the challenge has been that sometimes when you are you have low vision uh, and you don't actually see the browser but you're perhaps using a screen reader uh, or you have low vision and you're zooming uh, and you have to scan a QR code on screen that has provided a huge challenge and I, I had to solve that with viewport uh, sizes and making all these different types of calculations but what I'm realizing now as we're talking the way I would implement implement that now, knowing this, is completely different. It would be much, much easier. We don't appreciate responsive design enough, I think. We take it for granted. <laughs> so onwards to this MIT Technology Review article. Design thinking was supposed to fix the world. Where did it go wrong? An approach that promised to democratize design may have done the opposite. And this one's by Rebecca Ackerman, uh, who's a freelance journalist. And she's she's done a ton of research, I understand. You saw her mention this on Twitter, I think. Yeah, yeah, months of, um, of research is what um, Rebecca says she's done to this um, article. And I I really wanted to do this one because it, it's a lengthy one, uh, it, but it's a fantastic read. Oh, oh, listen, I, I noticed they've got listened to this article on, on MIT. Yeah, and it's it's, it's almost a 28-minute listen. Yeah, just to listen to it is is almost as long as this show. (laughs) Uh, I always appreciate when we question our own tools and methodologies in the design space. And I think we have to acknowledge and be aware because that means that if people are criticizing in the way that we can gather from this article, we need to be talking about design in different ways and probably performing it in different ways as well. Uh, and this article, uh, on the at the outset, it, it talks, of, of course, about how 
IDEO helped uh, market design thinking to the world. And, and, and the first paragraph talks about a, a workshop uh, that, that's attended uh, by a person by the name of Kyle Korn, Kornforth. And of course, it's, it's, uh, it's magical, this workshop, uh, with all these post-its everywhere and prototypes everywhere. Uh, and this was a, like this framework for collaboration and creation. Of course, people are happy within the workshop. But I love this first questioning of what, what, what did we actually perform? What would we actually, what was the outcome of the workshop? And she looked at the ideas themselves. And this is the quote. I was like, you didn't talk to anyone who works in a school, did you? They were not contextualized in the problem at all. Yeah, yeah. But it's got. Kind of, I, 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 I love the bit in the opening mm -hmm. bit as well, Per. The, the whole way um, she gets across the, the the feeling of that kind of oh, there's those workshops. Mm -hmm. and key to design thinking spread was its um, um, replicable aesthetic presented by the post-it notes, a humble <laughs> square that anyone could use in infinite ways. Not mm -hmm. too precious, not too permanent. The ubiquitous post-it promises mm -hmm. a fast-moving, cooperative egalitarian process for getting mm. things done it's kind of you know there's this momentum and, and and enthusiasm kind of yeah. embodied in um in, in the in the way she describes the method exactly so it's so it's alluring just the way way of doing it mm. uh, and that i think that's key to the article as well and then now i realize i didn't even mention that this first workshop it was uh, about uh, the edible schoolyard project so this was about um using gardening and cooking in schools to teach and provide nutritious food. So that's why it's, they didn't talk to anyone who worked in a school. That's why she was so surprised about this. Yeah, that was ideal. They had, they had all these ideas, but they weren't anchored in reality. Yeah, that was, you know, it was, it was ideal that was um, that behind that research and that project. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I don't know if you noticed, Per, but halfway down the article, um, there is a really interesting parenthesis. In brackets, it just says, um, ideal.org declined to be interviewed for the story. Yes, I've noticed that as well, yes. And the brackets for me were really interesting. Ah. Really, I think because it was, it was added halfway down in brackets, almost like kind of almost quietly. And the, the company that we're mentioning a lot in this article and is behind this, this, this format, I guess you could mm -hmm. say, has been you know, pushed out there, um, didn't take part in, in actually being interviewed for it and, and research. That's right? very true. Yeah, mm -hmm. but there are quotes from some of the founders, from books, and articles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and then the project that gets quoted a lot as well is also school and food related, but it's, it's another project. It was the San Francisco Unified School District uh, who wanted to re redesign their school cafeteria, and this one's interesting because this is on the IDEO website as like as a successful project, uh, and uh, as the article says, uh, ten years on, this has been. This has had a big impact, but it may have more to do with the slow and integrated work inside the district and the school rather than that first push of design-focused energy from the outside in the beginning, which were, I don't know, I don't know how much time they spent, but a couple of months, I guess. Yeah, that was, so that was the thing where the, the actual recommendations that mm -hmm. came out of the design thinking process hadn't really been implemented. Exactly. But, but they... But they had implemented some of the kind of um, some other aspects um, to change the space to be more, uh, so the, the cafeterias were then changed to be more um, oh, a better experience of eating them. I think, but yeah, that's it's good you bring this up already now because they they return to this at, more at the end of the article. But it's interesting because they had they had these ideas, but they they did not take into account 
the complexities of the district's operations. And I love this one. And the mm -hmm. effort it could take to even drill a hole in a wall in accordance with asbestos abatement rules. So there are things you have to do to actually accomplish what the suggestions are, but those haven't been taken into account at all because mm -hmm. you have these great ideas. And of course, how hard can it be to drill a hole in a wall? Well, apparently it can be very hard to drill a hole in a wall. Yeah. And that's uh, the same thing with the app because, oh, you need the app. Oh, but yeah, but that would have required a whole new department to continually update the software and content. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's fascinating, especially when you think about... Um, the episode before this, mm. um, episode 208, when we're talking about um, systems thinking, that, that design thinking really didn't, you know, gear itself up to be, you know, um, to be iterative, I guess, iterative, I guess, or, or even to consider the, the system that mm. the interventions were playing out in. It's like you're saying now, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do all these kind of grand designs of how the cafeteria should be, but mm. we didn't take into account there might be asbestos in the walls and we aren't allowed to drill into them, which you would pick up perhaps if you had a more holistic systems mm. thinking approach to it. Design thinking is more uh, oh, solve, instruct someone to build, and then move on. Right, and that's that's a big important thing you're bringing up there, instruct someone to build, because sometimes you don't even instruct someone to build. Sometimes you actually you do the workshop, you come with the suggestions, and then you leave it with the organization. Uh, and they have to find someone to implement. So. And as I'm saying this, I, I, I'm aware, of course, uh, that everyone does this differently. And I'm sure that not everyone listening uh, is, is doing this in the way that we're describing right now. But the problem is that many are. And design thinking has become this sort of religion wherein people say that we'll apply the design thinking process and everything will turn out all right. At mm -hmm. least it has been like that for, for, for a long time. And of course, now, I think over the past two, three years, people have been questioning it more and more. There's a quote right at the, towards mm -hmm. the end, I think, by um, Scott um, Dawley, um, who summarizes what um, students are saying to him when reflecting on the um, um, well, design thinking process. Mm -hmm. uh, the students were saying, I want to make something that not only changes things, but changes things without screwing everything else up. Yeah. And that's a good way of summarizing. And then this part of the article actually talks about how uh, IDEO themselves are actually trying to reconfigure what design thinking means and how they're teaching it. Uh, so that's what they're hoping for their students, that this is how they reason. That, And they're trying to get more equity into it. They're realizing, well, uh, I mean, because design thinking has been critiqued also, of course, for uh, it's a lot of, Western thinking and Western people coming into a space mm. and deciding that we're going to solve this using this fantastic tool. So it's like magical thinking as well. Uh, and it's more oppressive than we would probably like to admit. I think that ties in with the, the whole how might we um, thing. Yeah. Because that was another of, um, of, the, of the tools that, that came out of IDEO and, and mm. the process they had was the how might we. Um, and there's been a lot of talk and write-ups and criticism over the, the we um, in, in, this, in all this process. That exactly. Exactly yes. what you're saying with the privilege and, and, mm. and who you are, that the we is the people in the room, mm. the people that they bother to include in the process and how that you know, in many situations was often um, oh, white and, and um, educated and, and all the other kind of weird things that we normally uh, list there, not really mm. uh, in many cases the actual people like you said kids in the school or whatever having mm. the meals they're, they're not exactly. in there so, saying how they might do it mm. 
So it's not only that design thinking doesn't even, sometimes it even omits that crucial final step of implementation is what the article says as well, which is interesting. But it's not only about omitting the implementation, it's also, it's not even thinking about the aftermath, what takes place years after the implementation. Design thinking is at the very, very beginning and takes responsibility for not much. There was another quote, um, Carissa, Carissa Carter? I think it was whatever this one was um, that they um, um, they'd come up with more questions in the process that she'd adapted um, to 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 bring more care into it all, um, mm. and um, they added questions about how um, are we thinking about our ancestors? What is the legacy that this is going to leave? Um, what are all the in, in, intended and unintended consequences? Mm. Um, so, like you said, to kind of think about think beyond just this kind of um, initial thinking what else can we bring in to, yeah. to ensure this has kind of positive legacy hmm. now the interesting thing about all this and and this is something i took away from from some quotes from sid harrell one of our favorite people in the design space is that design thinking may have provided benefits but not the benefits that we may <laughs> intuitively think but actually the fact that like we were saying in the beginning it's an exciting process it, it gets people uh, excited and energized uh, within the space of the workshop and the collaboration and talking to other people, which usually happens within an organization, but not outside. But at least it gets people uh, out of their normal way of working. And that can itself have a benefit in that they get more excited about doing stuff in the future. Yeah, I know. Mm. There's the whole thing where if you're working with, with civic tech or public sector initiatives, you might have been banging your head against a concrete wall for decades. Mm. And, and, you know, it's nice to have something that oh, gives you some positivity and, and optimism and enthusiasm um, and the me methodology, perhaps, um, you know, despite its failures, does that. And that's what, that's what Sid does um, say in the, um, the article. And she says, the, um, often the biggest, um, the biggest piece of design problem in civic tech, as I said, is not generating new ideas but figuring out how to implement and pay for them. Yeah. And that's where the critique comes in as well, of course, because that, I mean, we're not helped by that at all in, when it comes to design thinking, at least in most cases. I, I'm sure people will be applying design thinking to those types of problems as well. Uh, but uh, it's, again, this magical thinking that's problematic in the sense that, that we're promising stuff. We're promising results from these types of workshops and these type this type of work but it's not including the people it should be including in the work itself. And, and before that was fine because we were moving fast and breaking things back. And that was okay back that was, in the old, yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. For I some mean, reason. The yeah. magic you're talking about, I mean, the magic's mm. fine because, you know, we, if we get out of there quickly, then mm. we're going to learn whether it works or not so we can quickly change it again. So, you know, you're, you're arguably limiting harm because the harm doesn't matter because it's only going to be a short time before we iterate. Yeah, maybe. And I love the honesty that's presented, and that's why I think you everyone should read this article. There's so many good quotes. You you've shared a lot of them now, James, as well. But there's uh, former IDEO designer George A. His quote about um, 
because you often have this beginner's mindset. And I think Tim Brown, one of the founders of IDEO as well, he had this suggestion that it's good to have a beginner's mindset as you come in. So there's no expertise involved really at all because so anyone can go into any space and solve any problem is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And what, what George A. says is that he and his colleagues would use the language of a beginner's mindset. But what he saw in practice was more an attitude that we're going to fumble our way through. And by the time we're done, we're on to the next project. Oh, you see, there's just... I it's mean, very oh, honest. Yeah. It's, it's honest, but I mean, mm. that whole kind of mm. um, like agency mindset mm. is, is worrying with, about this. I mean, it, yeah. you know, much... Okay, I'll say much. Some of the, so many of the feelings I get from a lot of these um, frameworks and, and processes um, is it, not you know, genuine usefulness. It's more how do we package something so our agency can sell more projects? And like you've, yeah. you've mentioned in this chat we've had now about how, you know, IDEO, they, they mention the success of a school project on their website. They promote exactly. it. They mm. promote these projects as look at the projects we've done. Mm. These are the badges we've got. You know, give us more badges. The, I mean, it's, it's this momentum in, in the agency world. Um, That's exactly what you're saying now. Give us more badges. It's gamification. It's gamification of business, I guess. We we can go out and promise because that's that's what the article also the, one of the conclusions is that the promise of design thinking was that anyone can do it mm-hmm. as long as you follow the process, which was very attractive to companies thinking that well I can just bring in uh, this design agency and they can teach me design thinking and then I don't need anyone else anymore I don't need the experts well and, and like you you just said as well that you know the experts didn't even need to be experts you could come in with exactly. the, new, <laughs> the beginner's mindset um, you know so it's it's, it's perfectly yes. packaged to yeah. to be something you can roll out again and again and yeah. again and, and keep on selling mm-hmm. and um uh, another thing from it um uh, towards another quote towards the end of it was was talking about um storytelling mm. and how you know maybe storytelling was a, was a, a key activity but um, it was realized that maybe storytelling is the key activity and yeah i mean listening to the, if you listen to this podcast often then you know that we talk a lot about communication and how mm. you know so many aspects of design is just communicating to the next person, you know, the other person or the other people. And storytelling is crucial. We've done a few shows about storytelling. And some, you know, like Don Litchow um, and, and, um, and others talking about storytelling. But the way, the feeling I got in the article when they mentioned storytelling was more connected to you know, that feeling of sales, that, that feeling of persuasion that it, we use storytelling as a way of getting the, the ideas in our, as a result of our design thinking across. As in, mm. you know, we're selling those ideas and they're getting buy-in for the ideas as opposed mm. to genuine communication of uh, a potential intervention. Yeah. And this is, again, Tim Brown saying this. This is one of his realizations after many, many years working with these types of frameworks is that, uh, I would never have guessed that we would have as many folks who come from a storytelling background within a design firm as we do today, because mm-hmm. that's who they're bringing in. Uh, so, yes, I, I've, I've felt that was kind of worrying as well, that we're still not really about doing the work. Mm-hmm. Well, buy-in, I mean, this, this could be a whole different episode, mm-hmm. just the whole thing about the need to get buy-in. I mean, we talk a lot about stakeholders and, mm-hmm. and including stakeholders, but also, you know, understanding organizations, um, and, and, you know, uh, like Sid talks about you know, getting the money to pay for stuff. I mean, mm. we're constantly in situations where we need money to implement the things, you know, and, and 
I know that I've been sort of guilty. I mean, I, I know that I've over the years, I've I've packaged things in certain ways in order to get buy-in. Mm. When I've actually got maybe other motives, or rather, I've I've got something I really want to implement. But I'm going to piggyback it, or I'm going to use another approach to get you know, management or organisations on board because they want something, but they haven't got to the point of understanding maybe an underlying need. Hmm. So, so, and I, th- I think this is somewhere where we often find ourselves as designers, or at least when working research, that you uncover insights, you uncover things, and sometimes they can be too controversial or too contrary or too much against an existing model of working existing belief as well a belief model of working where you earn your money all of these things that you can't just throw them in the face of of of, of, you know of the people who ultimately make the decisions they've got to be oh i know you've got to tell stories over a period of time or you've got to communicate it over a period of time in a way that you know people accept and understand um Hmm. and yeah so i can understand the storytelling I mean, it does work. Um, packaging things in a way does work to get um, buy-in for things to enable other things. Um, but you know, maybe it's a small criticism that, of, of what they were saying, that the uh, good intentions there, but I, I got that feeling of sales and persuasion. But that's probably built up because of the whole way the story talks about IDEO mm-hmm. and their agency way of selling design thinking as a process Um yeah, over many years, so I'm, I'm kind of, I guess, a bit primed to be critical of the of the agency model. Right, and I mean that's where the whole all this comes from. That's why we have the models and frameworks because they're easier to sell than bringing someone in to figure out the problem. That I mean, figure out the problem doesn't fit like in a in a box of a service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the end, I mean, it's it's all about recognizing now that yes, this tool maybe hasn't served everyone as well as we claim or as many people claim in the industry. And it's, it's something that we need to work more towards is actually just decentering ourselves and decentering the powerful and the privileged so that we can start working towards more equity and justice within the design space. Yeah. More care. Hmm. Well, and which I, th- I think is an excellent point. And like you brought up at the beginning here that you know, just, just having that critique of our tools yeah, shows that we are maturing as a as a industry, as a as a branch or whatever, and that we can have those moments of reflection and look back at it and say, well, that worked, that didn't work. You know, how can we do it better? Exactly. Some recommended listening before we close up for today. Um, well, I love that Sid Harrell was in this in yeah. this uh, article, so I think. We've done, I don't know how many interviews with her. Uh, she's been in, we've done two, yeah. two proper interviews. Um, yeah. She's been um, featured in episodes 247 and 194. Um, but she also made this, a little little kind of guest appearance on um, 193. So oh. Research on the Fly is episode 194. That's mm. an absolutely fantastic guide to, to mm. doing um, research. Um, and then we have Civic Tech with um, Sid Harrell, which we, um, interview- when we interviewed her in co- about the time she released her book yeah. um, about Civic Tech, um, she created a friendly guide for people working in the public sector, although it's really good for anyone who's even not working in the public sector. It is, it is really good for everyone, yeah. Thank you for listening. We don't say thank you enough. Um, and add us and subscribe to us wherever you're listening, if you already do it, if you just happen to be listening to this episode as a one-off. Um, and if you are an audience now, you can always rate us and review us. I think that still makes a difference. 
Oh, you I say. think so. I mean, all the other podcasts seem to say it. So go yeah. give us a review. It really makes a difference. Exactly. So all, those, all those big must, YouTubers as well, Pat. They always yeah. go on about how you got to, they do the pointing mm. down to the bottom saying, click, click there and give oh, us a yeah. thumbs up or review. So James is right now pointing on camera. I am. I'm yeah, thank you for the audio <laughs> captions. Uh, and, and show notes, of course, and full episode archive can be found um, on uxpodcast.com if wherever you're listening doesn't have a full archive. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James, what do you call a parade of rabbits hopping backwards? I don't know, Pearl. What do you call a parade of rabbits hopping backwards? A receding hairline. Oh.